Well, greetings to each one and welcome in the name of Jesus this morning again. Beautiful Sunday morning. I don't know how early you were up this morning, but it was beautiful. It was clear and crisp uh, this morning. And it's one of the marvels of God, God's hand in creation and uh, the variety that he can give us. I'm continuing uh, the message this morning is a continuation of my messages on the attributes of God, and I probably uh, will make this the last one unless um, my mind changes before between the next time and now. Just reminding us again that man's spiritual history positively demonstrates that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. It's a quote from A.W. Tozer. Man's spiritual history positively demonstrates that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. How we see God, how we view God, how we know him, um, or or walk with him, or or, our level of spirituality will only be as great as our understanding of God and his word. We also understand as we stand and try to, to describe this God in some of his attributes, um, who is, he, is, he is limitless. Um, the last verse there talked about man being as the flower, of, as, a, as the grass that perisheth. We're, we're so bound by time. We're so limited by time. We're so um, everything we think has is in terms of beginnings and endings. And so then to try to describe a God and talk about a God who has no limit, um, who is not bound by time, who defines time, and not only defines it, but controls it and, and um, determines how much time each one of us have, is, is, a, is, a, is something that we, we struggle to find words for, but we're going to do our best by the help of the, Holy, the Spirit of God this morning. So the three attributes I'd like to look at is holiness, faithfulness, and love of God, <clears throat> and here again, not at all um, trying to, to, to go to an in-depth study of either of the attributes, but rather a general overview and hopefully um, remind us of, of some of the things we've heard before on these subjects, on these attributes of God, and then also to whet our appetite to, to study and see for ourselves, more of God. <clears throat> First off, looking at the holiness of God. The Bible has a lot to say about the holiness of God. And the book of Revelation gives us some scenes of, of holiness and the holy, of what, what it's like to be in the presence of a holy God. In general, the word holiness is a term used to indicate sanctity or separation from all that is sinful, impure, or morally imperfect. <clears throat> In essence, it is moral wholeness, and that's a definition coming from Unger's Bible Dictionary. It's a term used to indicate sanctity or separation from all that is sinful, impure, or morally perfect. In essence, it is moral wholeness. As it pertains to God, holiness is one of the essential attributes of his divine nature. It is freedom from moral, evil, and absolute moral perfection. 
Holiness as it pertains God is freedom from moral evil and absolute moral perfection. And we know as human beings that we can't come very close to that moral perfection. So we talk about the holiness of God. Are we trying to indicate that God is bound to a law of holiness? God, as we, and we know that God is not bound to any law. All moral law has its eternal and unchangeable basis in his nature. He is, he, is, he is the one who sets the law. He's the definition of the law, and he is the example of it to us. <clears throat> so he is the definition of holiness to us. He sets it. He, he always was holy. He always will be holy, and he always is holy. He is the root and ground of holiness. He is the nature of holiness. He is the definition and perfect expression of holiness. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. <clears throat> Revelation, 5, uh, Revelation 15, verse 4 says, Thou alone art holy. You study the Old Testament, especially some of the rituals and and uh, and the building of the tabernacle, and there was the the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies, and and when you get to the holy of holies, you get this sense of awe and 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 almost fear and reverence. That is somewhat of an illustri- is an illustration to us of the holiness of God. <clears throat> Five aspects of the holiness of God that we'd like to look at this morning is it is a special ground of reverence, awe, and adoration. As I mentioned, the, the Holy of Holies in, in the tabernacle would illustrate that to us. There was the base of Mount Sinai when God met his people there on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. They, they had that stop at Mount Sinai, and you know the story how God set a a perimeter around the base of Mount Sinai, lest they come too close and be consumed. And God settled down on that Mount Sinai, and it shook, it rumbled, and there was lightning and thunder. And I worry sometimes that we read these stories so much, we're so familiar with them that we can hardly picture them in your mind. So picture possibly one of the most vicious thunderstorms you've ever been experienced or seen might get somewhat of an idea of of what Mount Sinai was like when God descended on it and met his people there. The ground of reverence, awe, and adoration. Different times throughout Scripture, God revealed himself to man, and the place where he revealed himself was considered to be holy. Consider Moses at the burning bush. Isaiah in the temple when he met God in Isaiah chapter 6, and I'll mention that again later. It is where we meet God and find ourselves lacking uh, mortal mankind. Every time we get close to God, every time we get a sense of his presence, of his holiness, we find ourselves intensely lacking. The second aspect is of God's holiness that it is the standard of holiness. And we're called to that standard of holiness. Matthew 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Second Peter 1, 16. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy, from the verses, one of the verses that, that uh, Larry just read. 
Be ye holy, for I am holy. God himself is the definition of holiness. The third aspect of the holiness of God is that it is the divine opposition to and condemnation of all sin. And this is where we tremble. This is where we feel our undoneness when we meet God. And we feel our sinfulness as we stand before a holy God who is the definition of moral perfection and moral wholeness. 1 Samuel 6, verse 20, tells us that the men of Bethshemesh, there's too many S's and H's there together. The men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? You know what happened there? The people of Beth Shemesh had looked into the Ark of the Covenant, and God killed. Could you guess how many people he killed? Does anybody know? You want to eventually guess how many men were killed because the people of Beth Shemesh looked into the Ark of the Covenant? Thousands. Tens of thousands. 50,000 men. 50,070, if I understand the, the number correctly in the Bible, were killed because the people of Beth Shemesh had looked into the Ark. Of, into the Ark. It was... The, the ark was, was not where it belonged, and they were not handling the ark according to God's, rec, God's requirements, according to God's law. It was, the ark was where God met his people, and it was, a whole, it was intended to be in the Holy of Holies, and it was outside of there at this time, and these people had looked in, and because of that, many of them lost their lives. And the men of Beth Shemesh trembled, and said, who can stand before this holy Lord God? We talk about civilian casualties. Sometimes when we talk about what's going on in Ukraine. How about 50,000 men losing their lives because they got in the way of the holiness of God? Isaiah 6, 5 is when Isaiah was in the temple and, and he met God and that angel took those coals of fire and his response to that was woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts the fourth aspect of the holiness of God is I've alluded to already is that it awakens and deepens the human consciousness of sin The holiness of God awakens and deepens the human consciousness of sin. And it couldn't cause us to fear. It should cause us to fear and tremble and realize that we need someone, something bigger and higher than ourselves. And the fifth thing is that it is the highest goal of human aspiration, hope, and endeavor. Hebrews 12 gives us lots of practical um, teaching on how to live a holy life. And verse 15 says, Verse 14 in Hebrews 12 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. We need holiness to see God. You expect to see God in eternity. We need to have holiness before we get there. This isn't the end of the sentence. The whole chapter teaches us practical aspects of holy living. First Peter 1, again, some of the, from the verses Larry read, verses 15 and 16, But as he which hath called you his whole Holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
Holiness in mankind is at best imperfect as long as we're this side of eternity. Any holiness within us is the outcome of the gracious work of God in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and the, the plan of salvation that he offered to us. However, holiness does require effort in our lives, and it, it requires the exercise of one's free will. It's not something that just comes upon us. There's a, there's a level of holiness that's given to us at new birth. But as we continue on in our walk with God, it takes effort to live a holy life. Ephesians 4, through 24, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed by the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The putting off and the putting on is something that we as human beings need to choose to do. It is something, it's an action on our part. Colossians 3 talks about that as well. As human beings, there is this strain between how we see the holiness of God, how we see our own level of holiness, what we know we should attain to, and what we really are and what will be in the future. And, and, we, and we have this push-pull, this strain in our lives, in our daily lives, in this walk of holiness. In summary, as we abide in the shadow of the Almighty, as we walk with him, as we fill ourselves with his holy word, we will become more and more like him, set apart, sanctified, in, and holy. And then in eternity, we will be able to experience complete holiness. Moving on then to the faithfulness of God. An aspect of God that's not quite as fearful to talk about as the holiness of God. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines faithfulness as dependability, loyalty, and stability particularly as it describes God in his relationship to human believers. Dependability, loyalty, and stability. In Doctrines of the Bible, Daniel Kaufman wrote, His promises may be numbered by the thousands throughout Scripture, and he has never broke a single one of them. His dealings with sinful men present one unbroken record of faithfulness. God is faithful. He, when he speaks, he keeps his word. There is no doubt... <clears throat> in his mind after he spoke that he will we can have full confidence that when God speaks he will keep his word Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says know therefore that the Lord thy God he is God the faithful God which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations there are approximately I'm told there are approximately 277 accounts in the Bible of covenants between God and his people, not one of them is broken. <clears throat> God keeps his covenant. A few examples of faithfulness of God, of the faithfulness of God in Scripture. We see it in the life of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, promising to Noah that he would destroy the people. There was so much wickedness on the face of the earth that God said, I'm going to destroy it. Every living creature is going to die, except that Noah his three sons and their wives, and then the animals that he allowed them to bring, that he commanded them to bring into the ark was going to be the only 
thing that was living. Nothing like this had ever happened before then. Nothing like it has ever happened since. But God promised it, Noah that it would happen, and it took him so many years to build the, the ark, and yet he was faithful because he, he apparently understood that when God speaks, when God promises, he will keep his word. God is faithful. Then we have the life of Abraham, which would be an interesting study. In Genesis chapter 12, at 75 years old, God called Abraham out, Abram out of his homeland and promised to make of him a great nation and a promised him a land, asking him to leave his homeland and promised him a land. Genesis 15, God established a covenant with Abraham, giving him the land. With it, he promised a posterity that would not be numbered. And then in Genesis chapter 16, we have this ironic twist. And it's kind of interesting when you think about this in, in terms of God's faithfulness. Abram was 75 when God promised him, when God called him out of his homeland and promised him a land and promised him a posterity that couldn't be numbered. And I'm not exactly sure how many years later it was. This just wasn't happening. And Sarah suggested to Abraham that Abram that they take this thing into their own hands and we know the story, how Hagar conceived Ishmael, and Ishmael was born as a result of, God, of man taking God's plan into their own hands. And yet God had made this promise to Abram that he would make of him a posterity, a people that couldn't be numbered. And, and he didn't break that covenant, not even when God took, not even when mankind took things into his own hands. Do you get the picture? I want to say that Ishmael was not God's plan. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correct, if that's theologically correct. But, but, but God had promised, to, but he was not the promised son that we know. He was not the promised son that God intended to carry on Abram's name. But because God had promised Abram that his offspring would be countless and unnumbered, that an aspect of that promise went with Ishmael. And he also had, was promised descendants of without number. And then in Genesis chapter 17, at 99 years old, God established a covenant with Abraham, promising a people. And we know the rest of the story. Abraham, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. The children of Israel inhabited the land that is today called Israel. And at different times, when they strayed away from God, God carried them, allowed them to be carried away captive and always they had this desire to go back to their homeland. And then there was a time in more recent history, uh, recent being relative, of course, when it seemed like God's promise wasn't being kept and was, was, not, was being broken. And yet, in May of 1948, Israel became a nation, and many Jewish people were miraculously able to return to their homeland. And even today, there's an interesting thing within the Jewish people. I think you'll find it in almost every one of them that you talk to. And we, have, we all have an aspect of that in our lives. But I think there's a, a different level of it amongst the Jewish people, this desire to go to their homeland. I think I've told the story of our, of our family doctor. Uh, he, was, he, was, he is Jewish. Um, it's about a year ago now, a little over a year ago, that I, visited, I had my last appointment with him and just a few weeks after that, he moved over to Israel. They, had owned, they owned some property there. And, I, and we, we discussed that briefly. And I found it intriguing, his desire to go back to Israel 
And even though he spoke of, uh, from their porch uh, of their apartment, they could see the missiles flying and some of the conflict that was going on. And I said, aren't you afraid? And he mentioned there's something about the land. And until you go and experience the land, um, that, was, that was a deep desire within him to go back to the land. As far as I know, they are there today. The story of the Jewish people is a, a vivid illustration of God's faithfulness to his promises in spite of the faithfulness or lack of faithfulness of his people. We could look at a few more promises, like in Genesis 3.15. God promised a solution to the sin problem. Adam and Eve had sinned, had fallen. God was casting them out of the Garden of Eden. He was pronouncing judgment on them. But mixed in that judgment on Eve in particular was, the, was embedded the, the promise of a solution to the sin problem. And then we see in Scripture the the fulfillment of that promise. Matthew 1, 21-23, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Another promise that he gave to us in Scripture is a promise to take away sins. Romans 11, 25 through 27. For I would not, brethren, <clears throat> that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. More verses affirming his faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Second, Second Thessalonians 3.3 3, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. <clears throat> First John 1.9, familiar verse to all of us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His faithfulness is an anchor to our soul. We could look at Hebrews six seventeen through 19, but I'll keep moving. <clears throat> because of the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of history, the testimony of fellow believers, we can receive his promises with full confidence. And you can even think of his faithfulness in, in just the simple things like time. Time moves on, steadily advancing. At the same rate that it has for thousands and thousands of years, time keeps ticking on. It's God's faithfulness can be evidenced in that. His faithfulness can be evidenced in the promise of the changing of the seasons. that happens every year to more or less degrees. In creation, lots of the laws of creation that are consistent 
and, and predictable through years of study and scientific study and, and tracking weather patterns, for instance, weather can be predicted fairly closely uh, into the future, enough so that we can make decisions accordingly. God's faithfulness is illustrated to all around us. Hebrews 12 catalogs for us a list of people whose faith carried them through a myriad of situations, and it was a solid faith because it was rooted in the faithfulness of God. And again, as with all other attributes, God is not bound to a definition of faithfulness. He is the definition of faithfulness. Lastly, I'd like to take some time to look at the love of God. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16, that God is love. God is love. The word love, as it's used in the whole chapter in John chapter, 1 John 4, is, is the word agape. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. There are three types of, at least three types of love in the Bible. Three of the main ones that we typically look at. Agape love is that unconditional love. Filial love is the brotherly love. And then there's the eros, which is a romantic love. God is love. He is the definition of love. He is a high, love is the highest characteristic of God. It is, the attri- it is the attribute in which all other attributes blend and work in harmony. And in our minds, again, we're so limited because we, we have so much capacity, a limited capacity in our minds to, to figure things out, to work things out. And understand things. But God is always all of his attributes all the time. Be it love, be it mercy, be it justice, holiness. He is all his attributes all the time. It doesn't soften. His, the attribute of love doesn't soften or reduce what we consider to be the harsher attributes. But it simply blends them harmoniously. <clears throat> no doubt that love is the most liked attribute of God. The love of God is eternal, just as he is eternal. He expressed his love even before mankind was was created. We can see that in John 17. Uh, One place we can see that is John 17, 23 and 24, where it illustrates to us the love that was within the Trinity um, amongst the the three three parts of the Trinity. Verse 24 says, For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So God always had uh, an object of his love, even before man was, was created. The love of God expresses itself in many different ways. And just a few that I've chosen is in his mercy and grace. Exodus 34, 6 says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And the setting here is the second time that Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting God. And God, you remember the story how he had come down from Mount Sinai the first time with the Ten Commandments. And the people had fallen into idolatry. And God was at that time again ready to destroy his people. And Moses interceded on behalf of the people. And God, it seems like God... In our minds, we, th- we think that God it changed his mind because of Moses' 
intercession for the people. <clears throat> but it was his merciful, gracious, long-suffering was the evidence of his love for his people. His love is expressed in patience. In Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9, it says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. And as I mentioned earlier, we know the story of the children of Israel and their, their ebb and flow, how they followed God, how they obeyed his commandments, how they turned their back on God, and yet God's love was consistent and faithful no matter how they responded to him. The love of God underlies everything he is doing, everything he has done, and everything he will do. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, God's love is there. One could ask, why does a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? We can't always understand God's ways. But we can always know that God that God's love will sustain his people through his mercy and grace. Or we could ask, why does a good God allow people to go to hell? To that we can answer, it is God's love that offers them a better way. It's God's love that keeps from sending them, sending us there right now and his patience that allows us to even exist when we're turning our back on him. The ultimate proof and evidence of his love is redemption. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, But God commendeth, commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you imagine that kind of a love? As we were turning our backs on him, he still loved us. We just went through his Sunday, through his crucif- the crucifixion of Jesus in our Sunday school lesson. And as he hung there on the cross, he knew that there was many, many people, even right there in the vicinity, right there watching him, that were turning their backs on him, and yet he loved each one unconditionally and the same. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us in that because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's really not even touching the surface of God's teaching on love in 1 John 4. You should look at it again uh, soon. Because when, as we experience God's love, as God's love becomes a part of our life, it, it evidences itself in our life by pouring out to those around us. In fact, we can't say, 1 John 4 tells us that we can't say that we love God um, if we don't love other people. It's a natural 
It's a natural response of God's love, of knowing God's love, of having God's love in our life is loving his people and the people around us. In summary, then, in closing, each of the attributes of God invokes a unique response in our lives. Holiness brings a mixture of awe, reverence, and fear. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us how weak we are. It shows us how desperately we need a Savior. Faithfulness is a calming, reassuring attribute. It gives us courage to continue on. It gives us strength to make it through the difficulties of life. It gives us the ability to see beyond today. Love touches the tender part of our being. It awakens our senses and enables us to live completely. It draws us to God. First John 4 teaches us that when we know and experience, as I've mentioned already, that when we know and experience the love of God, then we love our fellow men as a natural response. It is the oil of human relationships and enables the rough edges of my humanness to work harmoniously with the rough edges of your humanness. Or it enables the rough edges of your humanness to work with the rough edges of my humanness. The oil of love does that. Um, the passage of scripture, uh, the, the reference evades me at the moment, but there's that verse that says, love covers the multitude of sins. And we, we know We know we've experienced that in our lives. And so we marvel this morning at the holiness, at the faithfulness, and at the love of our almighty God. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the merits of the blood of Jesus. We confess that we can't hardly begin to understand and comprehend who you are, but we thank you for your word. And that it leads us and it guides us, that it, it illustrates us throughout the stories of Scripture, throughout the teachings of Scripture, of who you are, of your love, your holiness, and your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand these things as well. And we pray your guidance and direction on our lives as we go from here. I pray, Father, you would invoke within each of us an increased hunger and a thirst to know you, to understand you better and a desire for your holy word. We pray your blessing on the preaching of the word for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.